The following is a sermon from Redemption Bible Chapel in London, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit redemptionlondon.ca. It's great to be back at Redemption Bible Chapel. Uh, we, that is the family, pulled out of, pulled out of Cambridge at uh, 7.30 this morning. Wet snow. 401 was, it was fine, just wet. And then 20, 25 minutes east of here, I don't know what it is about that little zone on the 401, but we were in the midst of a howling blizzard. Snow everywhere. The highway completely covered. And for that brief moment, a moment of weakness, I did think to myself, why did we ever move back to Ontario from Texas? <laughs> but it passed, and it is good to be with you, and always good to worship, worship with God's people. I want us to begin by turning to Philippians chapter 2 and reading the entire chapter. We have been in it. If you have been here accompanying this series in Philippians, we have been in chapter 2 for some weeks. We're going to focus on the latter half today, but I want to take the time to read a healthy, sizable portion of God's Word, set the context, refresh our memories, or perhaps introduce the chapter to some who are visiting for the first time. But I pray the Spirit of God will impress the Word of God deeply upon our hearts. So I invite you, Philippians chapter 2, follow along as I begin reading for us in the first verse. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. 
I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Philippians chapter 2. I want us to begin in Portugal. The year is 1999. Uh, my wife Allison and I had the opportunity to serve the Lord in that country from 1995 to 2000. We lived in the north, a city called Santa Maria da Feira. And in 1999, we had the opportunity to travel to Ireland from Portugal. I was there to speak at a conference. And before we left our home, our apartment, in the city of Santa Maria de Feira, I decided it would be a good idea to turn off the electricity. I forgot to empty the fridge. Even worse, I forgot to empty the freezer. And there was sausage and chicken and ground beef and I don't know what else crammed in that freezer. Off we went, two weeks, middle of July, the hottest month in Portugal. And uh, two weeks later, we returned home. Standing at the front door, I knew something was off. <laughs> something is not quite right here. And produced the key, opened the front door, and nearly fell to my knees as that stench overwhelmed me. The stench, the odor of rotting, putrefying meat. Absolutely repugnant. I tell you that story to convey a truth. And I hope we'll still be friends after I convey this truth to you. Uh, that is what our sin is like in the sight of God. It is absolutely repugnant. Scripture is even more brutal in its description of our sin. It refers to it as an abomination in the sight of God. You know, it's not, it's not rocket science. Uh, God commands us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You don't do that. I don't do that. We're not even close to doing that. Nowhere near it. And the Bible commands us to love our neighbor as our self. And we don't do that either. We fail, we fall short, we transgress, we sin every moment of every day, and it is downright repugnant in the sight of God. Do I have your attention? All right. Christ has offered himself upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin. 
I know this is a sort of Baptistic group. I heard one faint amen. Can I get a little bit of an amen? Christ has offered himself upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin. Rembrandt, famous artist, the raising of the cross. Are you, all you art majors, the one or two of you who might be out there, the raising of the cross, Rembrandt, beautiful painting, beautiful depiction of the crucifixion. And there, as you would expect, you have uh, surrounding the cross with Christ fixed, nailed to that cross, uh, the women in their hour of grief, the soldiers guarding, watching over the entire scene, the priests scowling and pointing and ridiculing and taunting. And in the midst of it all, this misplaced individual with a blue painter's cap. Who is it? It's Rembrandt. He painted himself into the raising of the cross. And there he painted himself with his hands holding the cross. Doing what? Setting it in its place. What was Rembrandt communicating in no uncertain terms? It was my sin that nailed him there. He went there to suffer for me. He went there to die for me. He went there to make atonement for me. Martin Luther stated it so eloquently as only Martin Luther can. He, he stated, he declared at one point during his life, I carry the nails of Calvary in my pocket. I carry the nails of Calvary in my pocket. Do you think of yourself like that? The nails of Calvary in your pocket. It simply means this. It was my sin that nailed him there. Christ offered himself upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin. God now offers Jesus Christ to all who will receive him. No demands. He doesn't require us to be good enough or sorry enough or holy enough. He doesn't require that we meet a certain list of requirements. He doesn't demand that we score 97% or 84% or 100% or some sort of examination. No, he simply now offers Jesus Christ to us for the salvation of our sins. And it was Hudson Taylor, the famous missionary to the land of China in the 1800s, converted as a young man. I think he was 18, 19 years of age. He knew the Bible. He'd been to church. He knew the Bible stories. He had heard the gospel. But he was walking down the street one day, and some complete stranger handed him a little tract. And the title of this tract, It Is Finished. He didn't have to read anymore. He recognized the words. The words of Christ as he hung upon Calvary's cross. It is finished. It is done. It is complete. And that was the moment of his conversion. And reflecting upon it years later, Hudson Taylor declared the following. Upon a life I did not live. Upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death I stake my whole eternity. He understood it was finished. That Christ offered up himself upon Calvary's cross to make atonement for sin. And God offers Christ Jesus to us. And we receive the Lord Jesus Christ through? Through faith. Oh, Christ is sweet. 
when sin is bitter, when we recognize that our sin reeks to high heaven. I don't apologize for that, friend. There's no cure till you know you're ill. There's no remedy till you know you're sick, and we are sick. Our sin reeks to high heaven. It is an abomination in the sight of God, and it is only when sin is bitter to the taste that Christ is sweet to the soul. It's only when we sit, we're sick, we go look into the physician, right? It's only when we don't feel, feel well, we go to the doctor. No, it's only when we really perceive our sin, we understand who and what we are in the sight of God, that we receive this great gift of salvation and we receive it through faith. And by receiving it through faith, we become one with him. And because we are one with him, we get, we receive all of those blessings and privileges and gifts that he purchased by virtue of his perfect life and by virtue of his substitutionary death upon Calvary's cross. We get forgiveness of sin. We get the gift of eternal life. We get the gift of his obedience, his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness by which we are righteous in the sight of God. We become set apart in him whereby we are set apart. We are holy in the sight of God. We become adopted, adopted sons into the family of God. We become heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, the recipients of a great inheritance. And we receive all of this by virtue of the fact that we are one with Christ through faith. And here we are, 2020, London, Ontario, having become one with Christ through faith. God now calls us as we await the inheritance to live out the gospel in our lives. He simply calls us to live out what it means to be one with Christ in his death and in his burial, in his resurrection. He calls us to live out what it means to be a forgiven sinner. He calls us to live out what it means to be an individual who has the hope of eternal life. He calls us to live out what it means to be an adopted child of God. Well, what does all of that look like? What does that entail? I hope you know where I'm going with this. The book of Philippians. It tells us. The book of Philippians, and Paul takes us there in his epistle to the Colossians, a little bit in Ephesians, certainly in Romans. He takes us to this same truth, motif in other places in his letters. But here in Philippians, it just leaps off the text. As Paul conveys to us under the inspiration of the Spirit of God what it means to be, have been taken hold of by Christ, whereby we take hold of him and now live out our union with him. Now live a gospel-focused, gospel-centered life. And it's why he has that simple command right there in chapter 1, verse 27, only that is above all else. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So live in such a way that your life points to the worth the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. Live in such a way that your life reflects what it means to be one with Christ, what it means to live saturated with the good news of the gospel. And if you do that, you'll go down to him. That's chapter 2, summed up in the word humility. If you do that, if you really live a gospel-centered life, you will grow up into him. That's chapter 3, 
summed up in the word maturity. And if we live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of Christ, we will carry on through him. That is chapter 4. And we can sum it up with the word stability. So where are we? Chapter 2. And we are finishing up our study then of what it means to go down to him, the second chapter. And by way of reminder, you will recall if you've been here, that Paul begins with three very simple commands. First four verses. Command number one, pursue unity. Verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Command number two, cultivate humility. Third verse. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Command number three, practice generosity. Fourth verse, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Sounds great on paper. Preaches well. I don't have the ability to do that. I don't even have the desire to do that. I need something more. And so what does Paul do in verses 5 through 16? He tells us to look away from ourselves and look to the Christ Jesus. And when we look to Christ Jesus, we will find the pattern of obedience. Verses 5 through 11. And we will find the power for obedience. Verses 12 through 16. In that rather lengthy section, the key verse, in my estimation anyway, has got to be the eighth verse. Everything hangs on this verse. Being found in human form. It's the incarnation. He did not lay aside his deity. He did not surrender anything that was inherent to his divine nature. What he did was he took to himself human nature. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. How far did he humble himself? By becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. And so what do we learn there? We learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is a self-giving Savior. We learn that the Lord Jesus Christ is all about giving self. We learn even deeper still that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the revelation of the triune God, is actually then revealing what? He's revealing not only is he self-giving, but he is self-giving precisely because the triune God is self-giving. The Father gives himself to the Son, the Son to the Father, the Father to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Father, the Son to the Spirit, the Spirit to the Son. He is a selfless, self-giving, eternal being. It is who he is. And Christ giving of him, up of himself, his self-giving upon Calvary's cross reveals who God is in his essential being. And Paul's point is what? We're to learn from this. We're to remember that we're one with this Christ. This Christ who gave himself so selflessly upon Calvary's cross, revealing what our God is like. Well, if that is what our God is like, guess what? That is what we are supposed to be like. And there we have the pattern and we have the power for obeying those three commands. And then what Paul does really, I think, to drive it home is he gives us three very personal examples of all of this in action in the remainder of the chapter. Three just, just powerful. We love examples, don't we? There's something about just looking on and seeing somebody doing something and learning by their actions, their conduct, their example. 
And so beginning in verse 17, right through to the end of the chapter, we have three examples of self-giving happiness in Christ. The first is an example of sacrifice. And we have it in Paul himself. Verse 17, look at it again with me. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I'm not going to belabor this. Numbers chapter 15, if you want to go back and read it later, there we learn about the sacrifices, the burnt offerings that the nation of Israel used to make. And as was their custom required by God, they would bring this sacrifice, a lamb perhaps, offered up as a burnt offering, and the sacrifice was completed with, with what? A libation, a pouring out of a drink offering to bring the burnt offering to completion and culmination. This is the imagery that Paul is employing here. And he's basically saying this, I've lived my life as a sacrifice. I, ha I have lived my life as a burnt offering. I have laid it all on the altar. I've given it all up for him. And it might very well now be that my life is about to be poured out as a drink offering. That I am about to bring my life, this sacrifice, this offering to God to completion. Completion how? Through martyrdom. He is recognizing that death may very well be knocking at the door. It may very well be coming for him. And Paul, he doesn't go looking for it, right? He's not looking for suffering. He's not looking for martyrdom. But he understands that his life is a life of sacrifice as he looks to the Lord Jesus, the one who humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. As he now lives his life in union with him, he recognized he is willing to offer up his own life as a sacrifice. Well, Timothy Keller writes, once you have a good view of God's mercy, anything less than a total, complete sacrifice of yourself to God is completely irrational. I don't think we go looking for martyrdom. I doubt very much that's in store for the vast majority of us in this room. But I would affirm this, that to offer up our lives as living sacrifices is, is simply the following, is to exchange our will for God's will. Let's not, let's not get too cerebral. Let's not get too hypothetical. Let's not get too big. Let's just keep it in the nitty-gritty 24-7, day in, day out, to live our lives as a sacrifice, to look to the Lord Jesus, his pattern, his power, and to live accordingly is simply each and every day when I get up to determine before the Lord that today I'm going to surrender my will. And my prayer is this, Lord, your will be done, not mine. It's how he taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Do you like this next phrase? Your will be done. Heaven, right? On earth as it is in heaven. Oh, self-giving happiness in Christ means we are willing to sacrifice. The second example is one of service. And we see it in Timothy, picking it up in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. 
Because Timothy had been there with him in Philippi originally, so they knew him. They were familiar with him. How is a son with a father? He has served me with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Just, we don't have a lot of time to belabor this. Just notice quickly, briefly, three features of Timothy's service. Notice in verse 20 why he serves. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. There's a tremendous motive for service, for engaging in service, the welfare of others, the good of others, the physical, spiritual well-being of others. Notice, secondly, who he serves. Verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And so Timothy has this great end in view to discern the will of the Lord Jesus and to do it and to perform it. That is who he serves. And notice thirdly, quickly, how he serves. Verse 22, but you know Timothy, Timothy's proven worth. This is a beautiful statement. I mean, Paul is just pouring it out here, isn't he? How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. What a precious sight. Timothy didn't serve as a slave, one who was obliged to do what he was told. Didn't even serve as an employee, one who was financially remunerated for doing what he was told or expected of. But as a son, his father suggests closeness, intimacy, and willingness on the part of Timothy to please Paul in Christ in the service of the gospel. Why he serves, who he serves, how he serves. Here's the lesson for us. Self-giving happiness in Christ means we are willing to serve. I won't ask for a show of hands. 35 years old, or 35 thereabouts, if you're here with us today, Assuming your average life expectancy, I think is what is it, 77 for men, 79 for women here in Canada nowadays. If you're 35 years old, you've only got 500 days to live, assuming average life expectancy. 500 days to live, what do I mean? 500 days to do what you want. After sleeping, working, doing your chores, shopping, putting the kids to bed, and everything else that life entails, You've only got 500 days. My wife, Allison, recited this little poem to me at the break. Oh, well, I remember. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. That's it, isn't it, Allie? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You've got 500 days to do what you want. What are you going to do? And forget those 500 days. Your work, your sleep, your recreation, your family. Do you view all of these things, embrace all of these things, look favorably upon all of these things as avenues by which you serve Christ? So work, vocation. It's actually not about you. It's not about making money. It's about serving faithfully in that calling. It's about doing it as unto the Lord and doing it with excellency. Raising your children is not a necessary evil. It's an opportunity to serve the Lord. 
It's a wonderful opportunity that God has given to us as moms and dads to rear these little ones in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It's a chief means by which we serve Him. Our recreation, interaction with our neighbors, our downtime, everything else, all of life. And it's wonderful variety and surprises and everything else that comes along with it. Do we embrace life as one great gift that is an opportunity to serve the Lord? Serve the Lord by serving others. Serving them out of concern and interest for them. Serving them with our desire to please Christ above all else. And serving as a son serves his father. Oh, self-giving happiness in Christ means we will be willing to serve. There's a third example in our text. Not an example of sacrifice, although it is there, certainly. And yes, I guess it is also an example of service. But above all else, it is an example of suffering. And we see it in Epaphroditus. Pick it up with me, the text, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There's a little play on words, somewhat subtle in verse 30. Risking his life, gambling his life. Epaphroditus. There is the name of a Greek goddess in Epaphroditus. Do you know her? Epaphrodite. She was the patron god of gambling. It's a play on words. I think the Apostle Paul had a sense of humor. Epaphroditus, you have gambled your life. He has risked his life to fill up, complete what was lacking in your service to me. He has suffered by leaving the city of Philippi, perhaps a family behind, certainly his local church, all that was familiar. He had suffered by making that long, arduous journey to the city of Rome. He had suffered by identifying with Paul imprisoned. How popular do you think that made Epaphroditus with the Roman authorities and with his fellow Jews? And Epaphroditus, there he is in the city of Rome. He grows deathly ill, suffering to the point of death. Suffering upon suffering upon suffering. Why? Here was a man who understood verse 8, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paphroditus, like Timothy, like Paul, their eyes were fixed. Their faith was fixed. Their hope was fixed on the self-giving sacrifice of Christ. And they understood this. Happiness is not found in self-gratification. I know that's what our world tells us. That is what Canadian society tells us. That is what absolutely every commercial on TV tells us. You'll be happy when you gratify yourself. It is the biggest lie going. Happiness does not come through self-gratification. True happiness, true joy, true meaning, true delight, true satisfaction comes through self-giving. 
Our God is a self-giving God. And it is made abundantly clear upon Calvary's cross. And in him we can know true happiness. The more we give ourselves away. A giving that is marked by sacrifice and service and suffering. In relation to this last point, John Piper has penned, frustration is normal. We need to learn this because we run from it. We think life is abnormal when these things appear or arise. No, frustration is normal. Disappointment is normal. Sickness is normal. Conflict is normal. Persecution, danger, stress, they are all normal. The mindset that moves away, flees from these, will move away from reality and away from Christ. Hear these words, please. Golgotha was not a suburb of Jerusalem. It was not a suburb of Jerusalem. I fear, and you know I'm preaching this morning, but I'm actually preaching to myself quite a bit, and I, don't, <laughs> I certainly don't have anybody in view. I have myself in view when I say this next statement. Is it possible we have embraced values as Christians? Is it possible we have embraced values that are actually antithetical to the Christian faith? I have the right to be happy, right? Pursue the American dream or the Canadian dream. I have the right to prosperity. I have the right to peace and tranquility. I have the right to good health. I have the right to avoid stress and difficulty and disappointment and all that is unpleasant in life. It is my right. My friends, as Christians, those aren't any of our rights. That is not reality. That is not the reality of the Christian life. We serve a self-giving Savior who humbled himself, humbled himself, and gave himself willingly, consciously, joyfully, gladly upon Calvary's cross. We are now knit together with him through faith. And Paul's principal point, principal message in this passage is simply this. There is the pattern for our life. And there is the power for living accordingly. Oh, an example of sacrifice. You've got it right there in Paul. An example of service in Timothy and an example of Epaphroditus, an example of suffering. Three commands, verses 1 through 4. An exhortation to look to Christ, verses 5 through 16. The pattern of obedience and the power for obedience. And three powerful examples of what it means to pursue self-giving happiness in Christ. And that, my friends, is Philippians chapter 2. We're leaving it, right, Norm? Business, our work here is done. As we leave Philippians chapter 2 behind, and there it is in the rearview mirror, I would encourage you, I would plead with you, I would beg with you, above all else, never lose sight of that one solitary, singular, beautiful statement in verse 8, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, that verse is able to disturb the comfortable. 
What do I mean by the comfortable? I'm not asking what those chairs are like to sit in for a 45-minute sermon. I'm referring to those perhaps who are here who are comfortable in their sin. Comfortable in their estranged relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Comfortable in their habitual pursuit of things which do not please the Lord Jesus Christ. Comfortable with spiritual mediocrity. Oh, this verse, the eighth verse, and this vision of the crucified Christ humbling himself, giving himself for us, is able to disturb the comfortable. If that is you, I invite you, please listen closely to this. I invite you to listen to the Lord Jesus weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane and to think of your sin that caused him such pain and anguish of soul. I invite you to listen to him crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Calvary's cross? And think of how he suffered the torment of hell for you. I invite you to see him dying in his bloody agony. And think of your sin that caused him to die, that caused him such physical pain and anguish of soul. I invite you to listen to the trembling of the earth, that earthquake, to sense those three hours of darkness, and to think of how you deserve to be swallowed up by the earth and descend to hell rather than to have any part in Christ's infinite merit. My friend, this should break your heart. This should break my heart. And it may be, I'm just after one, Right? I'm just knocking on a hard heart this day. It may be that you are an unbeliever. This is some of this just sort of flying overhead, maybe new to you, or maybe you've heard of it quite a bit before, but uh, never put much credit or stock in it. Oh, a hard heart, my friend. Catch a glimpse of the Lord Jesus being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That should humble you. That should cause you to bow the knee before him. That should stir poverty of spirit in you and cause you to cry out, what must I do to be saved? And what must you do to be saved? You must do nothing and you can do nothing. You receive the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, the one who made atonement for sinners upon Calvary's cross. And it's very well, there's a hard heart here this morning, a professing believer, and it's been hard for some time. It's been hard this whole past week. It's been a miserable week, perhaps. Forget the past week has been a miserable month, year. Do I dare go longer? And you've just been like a bone out of joint. All is not well with the soul. My friend, you need to come back to Calvary's cross. You need to get back into the shadow of the cross. You need to get back in this eighth verse, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And how that should break your heart for sin. You know, I put it before you. The choice is yours. Uh, I was at the dentist recently. It wasn't this past time. It was the visit before. You know those words? I love those words. Everything looks great. After the dentist has been probing around in there for a few minutes, everything looks great. I exhale, right? And that's what it was like this day. He hadn't looked at the x-ray yet. Then he looked at the x-ray. Oops. 
I spoke too, too, too soon. Everything's not great. We've got a major problem here. I fear many of us go through life just kind of looking at the exterior and we put it on for those who are looking on, right? And I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm okay. I'm certainly not as bad off as that guy. I've got it together externally, doing this, not doing that. Oh, my friend, take a look at the law and what it is God requires of you to love him with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love your neighbor as yourself and understand the law penetrates God's requirements and demands and his sight and understanding of us penetrates beyond this veneer, this exterior. He knows the inner workings of your heart and my heart. He knows all about the lust that would make us all blush if it was put on display here this morning. He knows all about the fits of anger, the fits of rage, the impatience with the kids, the frustration at work, and everything else. Yeah, 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 yeah. We might have everything, you know, in order externally. Oh, but internally. What's going on? What trans is transpiring there? Oh, as we see the Lord Jesus Christ hanging upon Calvary's cross, him humbling himself for us, may it soften our hearts, may it break our hearts, and may it cause us to run to him with that cry echoing in our ears. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Oh, never lose sight of verse 8. It is more than able to disturb the comfortable, comfortable, and equally so, it is more than able to comfort the disturbed. Are you disturbed, troubled, perplexed, downtrodden, feeling like a punching bag this morning? Whatever the circumstances of life may be, oh, get back to verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there you see a self-giving Jesus Christ, reflecting the self-giving triune God. And do you know why this triune God is self-giving? It is because he is a loving God. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. The Son loves the Spirit, and the Spirit loves the Son. Spirit loves the Father, and the Father loves the Spirit. God is the object of his own love. And our triune God dwells in eternity, this eternity of mutual delight and satisfaction in himself. Now think this through. Stay with me. Do you know what that means? It means he doesn't need to love you. He's perfectly happy in himself satisfied in himself. He gains nothing from loving you or me. But because he is a self-giving God, he gives his love to us. He bestows his love upon us. And you know, that's exactly the kind of love we need. We need someone to love us who doesn't need us. Because you see, someone who loves us because they need us, their love will always be self-serving to a certain degree. But his love is completely self-giving. And it is there for all those who come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul put it so well. God does not love us because we are lovely. Do not look for something in you that will cause God to love you. There is nothing 
God does not love us because we are lovely. He loves us because Jesus Christ is lovely. And he loves us in Jesus Christ. And so when I become one with Christ through faith, the love with which the Father loves the Son, the love with which the Father loves the Lord Jesus Christ is now the love with which he loves me. And that love is unchanging and it is unending and it is not contingent upon my merit. It is not contingent upon my performance. It is not contingent on what kind of day I had yesterday or what kind of week this was. It is an internal, immutable, that is unchangeable love. The love of the triune God, which I have now entered into by virtue of my union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher in the 1800s, he was walking in the countryside with a close friend one day. They happened upon a barn. At the top of this barn, a weather vane written there in bold letters on the weather vane. God is love. Spurgeon didn't like it because the wind was blowing that weather vane and it was moving and shifting all over the place. So he said to his friend, weather vanes are changeable, but God's love is constant. That's entirely inappropriate. And his friend said to him, Chuck or Charles or whatever he called him, settle down, you've misunderstood. Here's what that weather vane is declaring. Regardless of which way the wind blows, God is love. And that self-giving love has been displayed in unparalleled fashion by a self-giving Christ upon Calvary's cross. He gave himself out of love. He humbled himself out of love. He took the form of a servant out of love. He left a glorious crown out of love. He was hungry and thirsty and weary out of love. He was in a bloody agony in the Garden of Gethsemane out of love. He was betrayed and arrested and condemned out of love. He was scourged with cords and pierced with nails out of love. He climbed a shameful cross out of love. He bore the shame and guilt and condemnation out of love. He became a curse for us out of love. Oh, the wondrous self-giving love of Jesus Christ. Nothing, says the Apostle Paul, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, verse 8 is able to comfort, more than able, comfort the disturbed. My love is oft times low. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. I change. He changes not. Now the Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth not mine, the tie. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bond, this tie that we enjoy in Christ Jesus, whereby we are knit together with you in Christ by the Spirit. And we praise you for all those blessings that accrue to us through the Lord Jesus. And may this be a great source of comfort for your people here right now, for the weary, 
for the tired, the restless, the troubled, the overwhelmed. May we find great rest for our souls in the Lord Jesus and for the unbeliever present, our Father. Bring them to the cross, we pray. Show them that glorious mercy and grace which is available for all who come to you by means of the cross in and through Christ Jesus. Humble them for their sin, we ask it. For their salvation, for your glory, for the good of your people, we pray. In that matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen.